Angie for breakfast. We are in the midst of reconciliation week this week and as a bit of an offering of ways to get involved, I thought it would be a brilliant opportunity to support a a documentary that's going to be at Arana Cinemas in Bustleton. It's called A Blaze, and I have one of the creators, one of the storytellers, Mr. Turiki Onus, on the line with me this morning. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Angie, for having me. It's an honour to be here. Oh, the honour is ours. So <laughs> can you... So it's a, this is a family story and a family documentary yeah. about, you know, what is the world's first Indigenous, you know... Documentary maker, filmmaker. He he was a fascinating man. So can you talk us talk to us about your grandfather? I can. Yeah. So so my my grandfather Bill was was many things. Certainly a uh, a filmmaker, as we know, and it certainly certainly looks at this stage anyway like he was he was the first. I'm I'm, I'm excited to find out if there are any any other stories out there from other people as well. But Bill certainly was a filmmaker. He was also an activist, an impresario. An entrepreneur, a sheep shearer, a fire eater, a stockman. He had an extraordinary life. He was born at Tamagunja Mission Station, just on the banks of the Dungala, or the Murray River, as, as it's now incorrectly called. Born at Tamagunja Mission Station in 1906 and lived the early part of his life there. But when he was about 10 years old, he, his mother, his younger brother, and infant sister in the middle of the night, swam across the river into Victoria and then walked 70 kilometres into Echuca in order to protect the children from the authorities who were, who were looking for them at the time. My great-grandmother raised the family in and around Echuca for two years until she finally managed to connect up with her husband again, who was, had been sent away as an indentured stockman. And together they escaped. They got a cuff and wagon from somewhere, I don't know where. They got a covered wagon and raised the kids in that wagon, driving cattle all through the Riverina, always to try to escape the authorities. And it was from that life that Bill connected up with the travelling show trains. He learnt to throw the boomerang. He learnt to eat fire. He started working in sideshows and started travelling, particularly all up and down the East Coast through different communities, performing, and was exposed to extraordinary activists and knowledge holders. And from there, gained this real passion for, for resistance, certainly, but also for mobilising all of those skills as an artist and a maker and a performer that he'd garnered and using, finding ways to mobilise those to serve his activism as well. So eventually he finds his way back down here to Melbourne again and starts engaging in cultural revival. And this was really the, the hook that got us into, um, into the making of this film ablaze. He learns during that time to become a filmmaker as well. He's a cultural consultant for big-time filmmakers like Charles Chevelle and then Harry Watts on uh, a big film called The Overlanders that was shot up in the north of Australia and around the Kimberley. He cuts his teeth and he starts working with a whole bunch of very aware and socially active filmmakers, people who are very committed to social justice. And from that, he starts learning to tell stories himself and it starts off on his huge long journey thereafter of him starting to mobilise these skills. Eventually he ends up setting up, starting a business down here in Melbourne, selling artwork and souvenirs that people are making in the shop and smuggling off mission stations to sell. And 
then performance becomes a big part too. There's socialist workers, theatres involved, the trade unions are in support. It becomes a huge groundswell movement that builds right up to his involvement and his taking charge of the Victorian branch of the 1967 referendum. It's, it's quite a big story. And it, became, it was very hard to fit into, uh, into a feature-length film. We had to cut a lot out, but it was, a, it was certainly a labour of love and, and a lot of fun along the way. My God, this has just got to be one of the grandest stories of any any Australian that's going to be shown in a documentary, surely. <laughs> and a man who's, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not too proud to say I hadn't heard of Bill, and mm. that's what Reconciliation Week is about. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about recognition and about having these stories told because this is yeah. a story that I dare say will touch on. All of the things, you know, love, loss, heartache, difficulty, oppression, and then redemption and, you know, that that mm. referendum, even though it was a bloody long time ago and we haven't moved too much <laughs> forward since, you know, it right. was it was huge and he was central to it. I should have taught, been taught his name in school. Well, yes, I suppose. I mean, this is also part of it's probably Bill's fault as well. And I say that in a nice way because he was a very, very driven individual and probably quite fitting that we're... Uh, we're launching the film this year during Reconciliation Week, and the theme of Rec Week this year is Be Brave, Make Change. And Bill certainly personifies someone who was very brave and, and did everything he could to make change. But he was also incredibly committed and uncompromising in that vision for change. And I think also in that, and the reason I say that might be a bit his fault as well, is because he was so focused on the outcome that I think he wasn't particularly worried about getting the credit for things, which now generations later we can um, we can start telling those stories more loudly. But I certainly, from the time I've had telling Bill's story and growing up very closely with Bill's story, even though we never knew each other, we separated by 12 years. He died in 68 and I was born in 80. In coming to learn his story and see that, you, you see this again and again. There's a great selflessness there that he has and you get the sense that he isn't particularly interested in having his name attached to things only where it will actually serve a purpose. Mm. And I think there's a lot of stories. I think there are many, many stories. When, I, when we first started making this film with my colleague, Alec Morgan, with whom I co-directed and co-wrote a blaze, Alec kept saying to me, Bill's been written out of history. And I think he's quite right. It was also because Bill was quite uncompromising in his approach and the things that he said. And particularly during the time when he was saying those things, he was, as, as my old Scottish grandmother used to tell me, seen as a bit of a rat bag <laughs> in, in her broad Glaswegian accent. Said, there, were, there were other people who were very good at pouring oil on troubled waters. Your grandfather was not one of them. <laughs> For you to be his grandson. I mean, I was the same thing with my granddad. He passed away the year that I was born, so I never met him. And what is it like for you being able to connect with his story and learn about it from a work perspective, putting the documentary mm. together, but also from a family perspective? It was huge, you know, Andrew. It really was. And and I imagine I imagine this has been a, a similar experience for you. You know, when we've got those family members who are no longer with us, they they live large in these sort of family mythologies that we tell one another. And there's always that story of, you know, of when your grandfather did this or when your great uncle did that. And, and I'd, I'd grown up with those stories. So I always felt, I always felt Bill's presence and I've always felt very close to him. And I do much, much more so even now. But, you know, throughout a lot of my life, I've 
kept asking myself those questions. Well, you know, is is this what Bill would have done? Am I am I doing justice and service to the owner's name appropriately? And I learned a whole heap about Bill in the process of making this, and about him very much as a person too. I got that opportunity to really, for myself, form an understanding and an image of how he saw the world. And if there was one word that personified it, and I have said it already, but if there was one word that personified it for me, it was uncompromising. Mm. That Bill and his contemporaries, the other extraordinary activists that he was working with, they had this vision and they weren't willing to move from that. They weren't willing to make concessions. And you could take speeches of Bill's. Before that, you could take things like uh, King Barragas, Joe Anderson's speech from Salt Pan Creek. You could play them today and they would be as relevant now as when they were recorded, which says something for the strength and, and ingenuity of those who recorded them in the first time, at the first place, but then at the same time says a lot about the pace with which we move forward, that it is glacial at times. What do you think that uh, Bill would think about, you know, this week, today, 2022? I think he'd be quite happy about it. I mean, I think he'd be he'd be really pleased about the conversation. You know, I've just come from uh, an event that we have here. I work at the University of Melbourne at the Victorian College of the Arts. I'm, I'm the head of the Willand Centre for Indigenous Arts and Cultural Development and the Deputy Dean of the Faculty here. We've just come from our Reconciliation Week launch. We light the Willand, the fire, every year at this time. Our senior elders from community comes in, the Vice-Chancellor of the University comes down, the Dean is there. Several years ago, we had this idea that we really wanted to be able to throw the doors open because I believed, we all believed that there was tremendous desire and allyship from our non-Indigenous colleagues and friends out there. And regardless of what might be happening with the government of the day and what what policies might be being made in place, at the end of the day, there are people who are passionate, who are annoyed and disappointed about what they've personally missed out on and what's been closed off from them, and they want to be able to engage. And today I saw a couple of hundred people coming here, standing there for the lighting of that will and celebrating that space together. And I think I think Bill would have been quite moved by that because I think the big thing that Bill was most passionate about was engaging with people. He recognised the power of story, of connecting with individuals, and that regardless of what governments might be doing, there are people who are going to want things. And if we wait around for governments to change things, we'll be waiting forever anyway. We can instead get in and start changing hearts and minds, opening doors, making connections and encouraging people around us to start thinking about what they want, what they can do to start encourage them even to be a little bit more selfish about what we've missed out on and start saying, well, I want that and how can I get it? And so I think he'd be quite, I think he'd be quite taken with where things are. I think it's the work that people like Bill and others have done in this space that have led us to, to this greater desire and understanding or, this, or the desire for more understanding in this space, and I'm excited by what we can do together in this space moving forward, what real meaningful allyship can look like. It is exciting. And mm. I, on that sort of note, um, stereotypes have an awful lot to do with pigeonholing people and, mm-hmm. you know, keep, keeping people boxed in minorities or groups. And it could be across any section of society, whatever it Absolutely. is. Um, what stereotypes do you think are particularly challenged in a blaze? 
I think that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, for the most part, even today, and over the last two and a bit centuries in this continent, have been suffering, and I think we continue to suffer, under the yoke of low expectations quite often. I think that there is a low expectation. I think a lot of that is promulgated by our education systems. There are structures and frameworks in place that tell Australia as a society, perhaps, to to expect less of Aboriginal Australia. And then oftentimes we have to work twice as hard to be seen for the work that we're doing. And I hope that Ablaze starts to challenge that. I hope it also challenges some of the perceptions around the roles of Indigenous and non-Indigenous allyship here. I was very honoured and pleased to work with an extraordinary non-Indigenous filmmaker and co-direct this piece. It was very important to us that we did this together. We wanted to model a best practice, for want of a better term, to the world around us and show that we could do this work together. And that there are stories, there are histories of extraordinary heroes, great women, great men, great people who have been doing this work of stepping across these artificially imposed cultural barriers for a long, long time now, but we don't necessarily tell their stories. We don't necessarily celebrate them. And that, to me, is a great pity because oftentimes I think we think we have to start new every time. We've got to do that work for the first time each time out. So I hope we challenge some of those stereotypes and I hope we encourage people to look a little bit deeper because it was the chance discovery of you know, a nine and a half minute black and white film that the sound had been lost for in the National Film and Sound Archive that started this journey. Mm. And it was a desire for me and Alec to find out more and to start telling stories. And we went round, or to start hearing stories actually in the first place. We went round and we just started listening. And the number of people, the generosity of people that wanted to tell those, the stories of place, of, of fear, of their experience. This film coming as it did from Fitzroy here in Melbourne in, in Gore Street and Little George Street. We still had those knowledge holders here. We still had elders who remembered that place, who could describe the smell of it. Arnie Alma Thorpe talking about the constant smell of kerosene living in the slums of Fitzroy because you had to wash yourself and everything you owned in kerosene to keep the bed bugs away. Understanding the tremendous strength of the people who came from these neighbourhoods and they were still the ones that were building our national organisations that were creating these incredibly strength-based dialogues for the rest of the community, the rest of the nation to engage with, and were celebrating... Indigenous success. Part of this film from 1946 is, is footage of a stage show that was put on here at the New, Th the new Theatre. It was a socialist workers' theatre, number 96 Flinders Street. It's a car park now, but in those days, the New Theatre would partner with organisations like the Australian Aborigines League to put on social justice performances, and White Justice was the name of this show. It was put on in support and to raise awareness of the Pilbara strike in Western Australia. That's something that I reckon most West Australians wouldn't even know about. Exactly. And it's, I mean, it's ironic that given that the Pilbara strike is the longest-running industrial action in Australia's history, it's wrought perhaps some of the biggest change. And those original strikers in the Pilbara who walked off in 1946 and never walked back on are technically, in many ways, still on strike have built communities like Strelly and Warralong, have bought back huge tracts of country to run cattle stations on, 
have created schools and kindergartens to educate their the children out there on country and are doing amazing work and doing it almost entirely on their own. These are great stories of strength that are happening there in WA that we're still not we're still not even talking. We go go out to, to Port Hedland and then out to somewhere like Waterlong and you can see the train after train full of iron ore disappearing over the horizon with however many millions of dollars on each one. And yet at the same time, in the midst of all of this, there are people caring for their country, caring for their communities, ensuring that language and culture persists and that the young people coming through the education systems, they're a resource to be able to go out and stand on, on any platform or stage in the world and tell their stories. It's, it's an incredible story of strength, resilience and guts for me. And it inspires me to, to get up and keep doing stuff every day. Next doco? Next doco. Well, mate, well, we, do, we, go, we go out tomorrow along in this one too. Oh, right. Cool. Um, there's, well, I, don't, I don't want to give the whole, I don't want to give the whole game away. We should, <laughs> people should go and see it. But this is part of it. You know, we, we wanted, Bill, my grandfather, wrote this show with people at the New Theatre. This was his work. It was his film that he filmed these stories in. And that film never got out there. That film was suppressed by the Commonwealth Investigation Service later to become ATO. It was suppressed by people who were so scared of, of the stories of Aboriginal people coming from a place of strength, being seen on a screen, that it never made it out there. But now, 76 years later, we're able to reconnect with those communities in many ways bring that work that Bill and others did back then in 1946 all the way back out to the community that it was representing, who, who had no idea. Aboriginal people weren't allowed to communicate across the continent back in those days. Now we're able to finally bring that, that story home and in many ways bring Bill home here as well and, and start telling his story to, to all of the communities that he was engaged with. There's a there's a fabulous Noongar singer um, that I've been fortunate enough to call my friend and uh, Gina Williams and she mm. sings um, and her, oh, just the most incredible voice and she sings like lullabies but with like these beautiful like deep rich sort of soulful jazzy mm. kind of style and you know her bag her and Guy's bag is to bring Noongar language back into every day and have people learn it so there's not so few people and so it doesn't become an extinct language so she yeah. focuses on language and when she talks about it in her shows she talks about it like the bindi bindi or the butterfly and that um you know when the caterpillar you know munches away and is happy and healthy. Next minute, they disappear. They go into a cocoon. It's all dark. It's quiet. Um, there's no sign of it. But then they'll emerge like a butterfly, the bindi bindi. And um, she describes what's what's going on for Australia these days as that emerging butterfly. And it's you know gone from being this this grub to trying to be suppressed and then emerging as this beautiful <laughs> creature. And I just think there's a beautiful symbolism in that in you know in what you're talking about, like the the fact that you've got connection to West Australia and all of it, like for for a for governments that were so hell bent on you know suppressing and the legislation that was there and the the extra hurdles. I mean. Your dad wasn't considered a human in Australian law for the majority of his life until he changed it. He was considered flora and fauna, like oh, your granddad. Sorry, it, 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 the insanity of that. 
But the strength of it is that you can go back and connect it up and now we're all, we're listening. Yeah, everyone's here. Like we, we're desperate for this knowledge. We, Absolutely. We all feel like yeah. we missed out. You know, I got to, I know more about the Russian revolution than I do the Pilbara strike. That's yeah. insane. It is. It is. And this is the, this is the thing. And this is what I love about these stories. You do because we, we're playing the long game here and the butterfly is a perfect metaphor for this as well. But, and, and you, I mean, you're quite right. It was my grandfather, but it was also my father. I mean, my father was nearly 20 by the time the referendum happened as well. But this is this is not that long ago. This is only thirteen years before I was born that the referendum happened. Yeah. We're we're still very much in that time. I think we tend to think of it as something that happened centuries ago because that's how it's how portrayed. It feels at times. Exactly, and that's how it's portrayed. But it is still so very present and so very much here now. I mean, it was my parents who were voting in the in the referendum in sixty seven. It was it was people who are, who are still here with us now who were part of that change. Well, 90.77% of the population, anyone who voted in favour of the referendum. I've always, always wondered who those other 9.23% were. But um, <laughs> we won't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, don't give them too much airtime. Exactly, no. <laughs> and I, I also I, I wonder, I wonder what, the, what sort of support the 67 referendum would get Nowadays, if it happened again, you'd like to think it would be 100%, but I don't know if we'd even make it to 90.77% <laughs> the way that uh, some parts of the country are going now. But, yeah. you know, you're absolutely right. There are all these stories that we that we don't tell. And I'm excited by the stories that are out there that are still to be told as well. I think you know, Bill's story was really big for me and in my family, obviously, and I've now got the space and the privilege in my life where I can work like this, an amazing filmmakers and creative collaborators to work with on this. And of course, Alec was amazing as uh, my co-director and co-writer of the work we did, but also an incredible producer in Tom Zabriski, amazing production team. I mean, people, this one fellow, Murray Vanderveer, we, we had to limit Murray to four credits on the film. We could have literally put Murray's <laughs> name next to everything. And most of Murray's stuff he did for free. Murray, Murray did it just because he believed in, in this film. And it was a long, long slog to get this film made. It was almost impossible to get it funded. It took us the best part of six years to get the money for this film. We probably could have made it after about two. But every we got tossed out of every funding body in the country. We were told, oh, look, yeah, this is a niche film. No one really wants to see it by some people, not by everyone. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there, there were some funding bodies that, that didn't think it was, it was worth a go. And others who, and I, I, I bear them no ill will, the others, places yeah. like... The ABC, a national broadcast that has had so much resource taken out of it in recent years. People who were saying to us, they're looking at this is a fantastic story, but we just don't have support for it. I don't think a lot of people realise that the, the, the government, well, I shouldn't say the government, the previous government, slashed, hugely slashed the quotas of Australian content on television. And in so doing, then also cut back the amount of funding that not just overseas and national broadcasters, but all our broadcasters were getting. That there was been there's been a, a long and and protracted struggle to get these stories out there. And we were incredibly fortunate that we got the support that we did and we were actually picked up by the distributor, Umbrella Entertainment, before we'd even made the film. Umbrella who Jeff and Ari and Umbrella who were amazing who came on and said, No, no this is this is important. We want to support it. And I really think 
being able to show that we had that level of support from people is what helped us get over the line. And we got money from Vic Screen and uh, we got the MIF Melbourne International Film Festival premiere fund, which helped us finally come together and, and make this film. But it was long. It was hard slog. But at the same time, we knew that it was important and we had the content. And this was, again, it's the irony. Thinking about the metaphor of the butterfly, thinking about playing this long game, this long game that's intergenerational. I never thought I would be saying these words, but I will. Thank goodness for ASIO. <laughs> thank goodness for their egotism. Thank goodness for their fear. Thank goodness for the, for the, 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 the bigotry and the level of control that they tried to place people like my grandfather and his contemporaries under. And thank goodness for the, for the ego that led them to keep such meticulous records of everything that they were doing. Because had it not been for ASIO, there's a lot of this story we wouldn't have been able to tell. But well, now that things come out into the public domain, we can go to those archives and they have given us the resource to tell this story 70 years later. There we are, ladies and gentlemen. If you've ever been con- confused, that is the definition of irony. It really is. Tariki. I thank you so much for this big, long, beautiful conversation. I could just talk and listen to you for hours. Um, If anybody (laughs) wants to, make sure you find out where you can watch A Blaze. It's a documentary. It's an Australian story about a great Australian man um, being brought to us by some brilliant storytellers. And storytelling is the fabric of all of our all of our lives and get around it. Arana Cinemas Bustleton, thank you for screening it. I cannot wait to see it. Absolutely. There, there will be about four or five other venues in WA as well. But you can, if you go to and Google Ablaze the film, you can find the link and Umbrella Entertainment on their website. I've got links to all of the different states and all the places it's showing. Angie for breakfast. 